Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. It's a sunny spring day in 2016, and my wife Laura and I are at yet another hospital appointment. But this one's not for my son Bryson. This appointment is for me. Doctors have been monitoring my kidneys for most of my adult life because of an issue that came up in a basic urine test 15 years ago. We expect this to be another routine visit, but my doctor has bad news to share. My kidney function has plummeted over the past six months, and I'm on the verge of kidney failure. The bottom line is, if I don't get dialysis or a transplant soon, I'll die. So suddenly, I'm not just looking for one medical miracle. It feels a little selfish, but now I need two. One for Bryson and one for me. I'm Keith MacArthur, and this is Unlocking Bryson's Brain. A podcast series about my son, his rare disease, and our family's search for a cure. A few months earlier, Bryson finally got a diagnosis. A genetic sequencing test revealed that a mutation in Bryson's GRIN1 gene changes a protein in his brain neurons, one that plays a critical role in learning and memory. Because of that, he can't walk or carry on a conversation, and he needs help with everything from eating to using the toilet. But now that we have a diagnosis, we can start to imagine a cure. We've also found a community of GRIN1 patient families on Facebook. Six other families are meeting up later in the summer, including Bryson's GRIN twin, Olivia, a woman in her 20s from rural Pennsylvania. She has Bryson's exact mutation, and she can walk and speak. We've booked flights to meet up with them in Colorado. But this kidney thing, it's serious. And we're hoping it won't disrupt our travel plans. So we left that appointment, and we went and we walked around Queen's Park. And we were talking about kidney disease and medications and that he was going to look at something. And we had just gotten Bryson's diagnosis. And I think I remember saying to you, okay, we have to take – we really have to be optimistic here because it will be so easy for us to think, oh, my goodness – like, why are all these things happening? Would you say you stayed optimistic throughout? <laughs> um, no. I think <laughs> I definitely had a period of lower optimism when you fell off 
a chair trying to kill a spider in Connor's room and it hurt your leg. And then you were on crutches and couldn't lift Bryson. And I had to do that. That was a low point for me. Um, but I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot take on one more thing because we were barely just managing, I think, at that point. Kind of just holding on. Kidney function of above 80 or 90% is considered normal for someone my age. As organs go, kidneys are pretty resilient. Their function can fall as low as 15% before there are serious health issues, before it's actually considered kidney failure. My function was about 55% when I first got diagnosed. And for most of the past 15 years, the decline has been gradual, down to about 45% six months ago. But my latest blood tests show the function has plummeted, all the way down to 20%. I get sent for an emergency ultrasound and a kidney biopsy. And it turns out that I've lost the kidney lottery. Twice. I have two unrelated kidney diseases. One has left my kidneys riddled with cysts, some almost as large as the kidney itself. The other disease, the one that led to the sudden decline, has scarred the tissue that remains. Getting blood and urine tests every six months won't cut it anymore. Now, I get tested at least once a month. After one test, I get an urgent phone call from a doctor reviewing the results. He warns me that my potassium levels are dangerously high. He asks if I've eaten anything high in potassium, and I tell him I don't even know which foods those would be. Oranges, potatoes, bananas, he offers. But the offender, it turns out, were the tomatoes in the Greek salad I'd eaten for dinner the night before. He tells me to stay away from foods with potassium and repeat my lab tests in 48 hours. What's the risk? I ask. He answers bluntly. Sudden death. I get off the phone and suddenly I'm terrified. I don't want to die. I call Laura. Now, she's scared too, but at least we're scared together. And by the time I get home, she's printed out two lists for me. One of foods that are low in potassium and one of foods I need to avoid. That list is a who's who of foods that are supposed to be good for you. Avocados, whole grains, legumes, spinach. And it turns out the potato in all its glorious forms, mashed or baked or fried, is about the worst thing I can have. Even most fruits and vegetables need to be restricted, though apples, cucumbers, and cabbage are okay. But before long, it's not just my potassium levels that are concerning. It's phosphorus, too, another mineral that becomes toxic when kidneys aren't doing their job. Now, I also have to restrict meats and cheeses. My diet becomes mostly white grains, rice, pasta, and Wonder Bread. But if the diet is bad, the drugs are worse. I get put on a ridiculously high dose of prednisone, a steroid that my doctor hopes will slow the scarring of my kidneys. At first, the drugs make me feel more energized and productive. But then I notice the side effects. So does my family. 
No matter how hard I try, I can't sleep more than three or four hours a night. I get angry and unpredictable, and I'm definitely not fun to be around. What was I like when I was on prednisone? Next question. I don't think I should answer that with you right here for the world. <laughs> That's Bryson's older brother, Connor. I don't remember that much about it. Um, I just remember you weren't super, super nice. What were you like when you were on prednisone? Sorry, dude, but you were awful. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it just, um, you're such a kind of mild-tempered person, and prednisone made you not that mild-tempered. Just little things would set you off, and it really disrupted the balance of our lives. So it did feel very chaotic at that time, I would have to say. Very unbalanced. Um, that's a hard way to live, right? When someone's personality changes so drastically. But despite the psychological toll these drugs take on me and my family, they don't work. My kidney function keeps falling by about one percentage point a month. I'm quickly approaching the 15% mark that represents kidney failure. So we start planning on two tracks, for a dialysis or a transplant. But at least there's some good news. Doctors give me the thumbs up to travel. Colorado is a go. We're sitting in a rental car outside of Stumpy's Deli Subs and Pizzeria at a strip mall in Castle Rock, Colorado. We're already half an hour late, but we're stalling. For some reason, I'm feeling anxious about meeting these other Grin families. And so is Laura. When we finally get out of the car, we notice a woman walking towards us. We recognize her from our Facebook community. It's Judy, grandmother to Mim, a Grin One child from England. Mim and her parents were unable to travel across the pond, so Judy is here alone. I just remember her kind of coming over to the car as we were bringing Bryson out and, and giving her a hug like she was somebody I knew. And so I felt nervous, but mostly I felt excited. This was a whole new life for us, a whole new group, new family in a very different way than we'd ever experienced. There are these reality TV shows, you might have seen them, where people who were given up for adoption as infants get reunited with a birth parent as an adult. It's a bit like that when we walk into the restaurant and meet our Grin family for the first time. Like they've always been in our DNA, even though we've never met. Most of the people here with Grin One are younger than Bryson, and they're all in strollers or wheelchairs. But we're especially excited about meeting the one who isn't, Bryson's Grin twin, Olivia. She's 26 and sitting between her parents in a regular chair. Over the next few days, I can't stop staring at Olivia. It's partly because she has mannerisms that remind me of Bryson. All these kids do, actually. But it's also that I feel like I'm looking through a window into Bryson's future. Out of thousands of possible mutations in the Grin 1 gene, Olivia has one that's an exact match with Bryson's. And so, if she can walk and talk as a 26-year-old, then I have to believe that Bryson will too. 
Oh, it's Teresa. I'm Scott, and we have a daughter, Olivia Roberts, and we have an older daughter, Hattie Roberts Beam, who is 31. If you guys can just tell me about Olivia. She's fun-loving and spunky sometimes. She has a huge heart. Um, she loves babies. Um, she loves volunteering at the daycare. Olivia, Olivia loves music. Um, she is very sociable, and she's, uh, although you know, it doesn't isn't obvious to everybody. Olivia is a clown. She loves to be silly, and she loves slapstick humor. Three Stooges are her favorite thing to watch on television. When she warms up <laughs> to someone and feels comfortable, mm -hmm. and she's um, she's starting to feel more comfortable with the people in this grin group as she mm -hmm. gets to know them. But we also feel like Olivia, being an adult now, has been an inspiration to some people who, um, you know, some of the families who have been affected by Grin One to just see, you know, how, how, how there's always hope and she has come so, so far. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Like I remember before we met Olivia and I think you'd posted a video of her being silly with pizza boxes and she was like throwing pizza boxes around or something and that just like I don't know made us so excited and just gave us so much hope and inspiration about Bryson's future yeah well that, that, we hope so because uh, I know how much you need that <laughs> you know you need to feel yeah you need when, to feel hopeful when when we were um, at children's that, that I think that second visit 15 or 18 months we were um, given the worst case scenario that mm -hmm. She wouldn't um, she, walk. She might not, that she wouldn't walk and yeah. wouldn't talk. And, um, and she does both. <laughs> yeah, and I know that not all grinners can or will, but, but you just don't want to focus on that because if we had focused on that, then, it, you know, we may not have tried. You know, mm -hmm. we just, we just mm -hmm. didn't, didn't believe well, we them. All, we, we've always said... <laughs> high expectations for yeah. Livy. You know, we expect her to, to do, always do more. And to be honest with you, she's never stopped gaining in skills. Yeah, she's she still learns every mm -hmm. day. Um, at, at age 18, we noticed this huge growth and development, like um, socially and um, her language development too. When I'm around Scott and Teresa and the other parents, it feels for the first time like I can actually talk to people who really understand. We can talk openly about how hard this is, how we can both mourn the typical child we didn't get and cherish the special one we have instead. Our faith has been a big part of our journey, but I have to say for myself, I was, I was very angry initially. Um, the, we, we didn't get the daughter we were hoping for, but it turns out we got one even better. Um, <laughs> Uh, when she was a baby, I was angry, and I was I was in denial. I I thought, being a person of faith, I thought I'm going to pray her well, you know. And uh, God taught me that she's already perfect. <laughs> Nothing has to change. She's perfect the way she is. Yeah, actually, I'm the one that changed, not not Livy. And uh, and for the better, I'm a better human being because of her. Uh, yeah, but our faith has definitely helped us through and, this. And uh, yeah, I. I I wouldn't change anything, but in the moment, I would like to. Ch I just, I don't want this. I want this to be easier. But um, yeah, there's struggles, daily struggles. But looking back, 
you know, and seeing how we've made it and Olivia's made us. It's worth the journey, but there are days, no, I have to be honest, and sometimes in the moment you're like, oh, why me? Um, <laughs> you feel sorry for yourself, but you, you, know, doesn't you, you it doesn't <laughs> last, and you press on, and mm-hmm. in the big picture of life, it's been such a blessing. People will, friends and family, um, will say, how do you do what you do? And you... <laughs> What do you say? I mean, are you... Are you How do you not do what we do? I mean, it's yeah. Just, it's, 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 it's who we are now. Yeah, you, so. you do what you have to do. <clears throat> Olivia's adult sister didn't make the trip. But Connor's not the only sibling here. There are two girls about his age who both have younger sisters with GRIN1 mutations. The three of them spend a lot of time together. They form an instant bond. It's not like I hadn't ever met a sibling of someone with a disability. But we were all just so... We are all very similar in, I guess, the way that those experiences molded us and in the way the families operated because of the condition. One of these young women is Alexis, whose younger sister Iceland has more complex health challenges than Bryson. Her seizures are far more serious. She's had close to a dozen surgeries, and she's constantly in and out of hospital. Iceland is bubbly. She's giggly. She loves the outside. She loves the water. She loves to ride on her bike. She loves music. Uh, she she sometimes gets a sensory overload, uh, which can send her into a seizure. It can send her into a fit, and she's crying and. That's, that's, that can be hard to watch, but um, she's, she's bright and happy most of the time and just loves life. <laughs> How do you think that having Ice as your sister has changed you? I guess I'm more aware of people. Um, it definitely makes me more aware of her all the time and it makes me a lot more sensitive to her needs and that kind of stuff. I guess I'm, I guess I'm more natural with kids than other people would be just because I'm used to the whole babbling with my sister thing and things that entertain her music and tickling her toes and that kind of stuff, so... Like I've I've seen you, you know, a couple of different times um, with your sister, and obviously you're really good with her. But do you ever stop and think, like, how your life would be different if she were a typical sister? Yeah, I guess I've never experienced sibling rivalry. I could never be mad at my sister. She's she's my she's my little sister. I could I could never be mad at her. Mostly because there's nothing I could get mad about. She she can't control what she does and. Even if her crying keeps me up or stops me from studying, I can't be mad at her for it. I would definitely have a lot more one-on-one time with my parents, I guess. Or not even one-on-one, but we could go a lot more places together and that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't trade my experience with Iceland for the world. And, and so why not? Like, how, how, is the, how is the relationship special to you? Just... I love her the way she is. She <laughs> It's kind of weird explaining this. I've never really rationalized, you know, oh, why don't you want to 
change her, wouldn't you? Uh, trade it, even if you had to deal with a sibling rivalry and that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, I love her for who she is, and it's kind of all I've ever known. Alexis's mom, Michelle, she's the one who brought us all together. She set up the Giggling Grin One Facebook group, and she's hosting this meetup with her husband, Dave, in their hometown of Castle Rock, Colorado. Dave is a Colorado cop and a former Marine. He carries a gun. He's not the kind of guy that would usually come into my circle of friends in Toronto. But our kids have the same rare disease. We have a bond. You know, you dream of your daughter getting married, walking down the aisle, graduating high school, you know, going to college. I mean, you have your dreams for your child. I'm sure it's the same with a little boy, but I'm talking as a father of two little girls. You know, I, I had these dreams and, you know, I can still have the same dreams for Alexis, but now my dreams for Iceland have to be modified. Now I'm 51 years old. I have to make plans for when Michelle and I aren't here anymore. What, what are your hopes for... Iceland going forward. Um, boy, we're really trying to get a handle on the seizures right now. Um, you know, somebody said it earlier today, you know, uh, uh, the small victories are, are huge milestones for our children. And uh, uh, she's making progress. I mean, it's slow, slow progress. And she'll have something like the spinal fusion that'll set her back and and then, then we go forward again, but um, to be comfortable, to be happy all the time, I, I guess is my biggest goal for her. You know, I really don't think my daughter will ever walk or talk. Uh, our kids are in a lot of ways diminished, but in a lot of ways our kids teach us a lot about patience and about what true strength is. You know, I'm a former Marine and and I'm a uh, sergeant for a sheriff's department, and I like to think of myself as a as a rough and tough bad dude. But uh, boy, that little girl puts me to shame when it comes to toughness and her resiliency and able ability to bounce back. You know, so I, I want her to be happy all the time. That's that. I guess that's my biggest goal. Mm-hmm. We spend a full day with these families, learning about Grin One together. We hear from local Colorado physicians and a researcher from Wales who presents through web conferencing. We go to a Colorado Rockies baseball game and have a picnic at a local park. And at one point, Teresa asks if Olivia can take Bryson for a walk. Of course, we say. Olivia gets behind Bryson's wheelchair and pushes him around the park. Laura films this on her phone her eyes well up with tears. So do mine. No, that was a definite highlight for us. Um, yeah, it's going to sound so weird, but for me, Olivia, in a weird way, I think it's a little bit like a big sister. Her and Bryson are united in their very, very unique, distinct change. There will be very few people exactly like them in the world this one significant genetic change that makes them so alike. During a break in the activities, I go by myself for a 90-minute hike to the top of Castle Rock, the tower-shaped butte that gives this Denver suburb its name. When I return to the parking lot, I notice another car parked near mine 
with a pile of Kleenex on the ground beside it. As I get closer, I see a tissue fly out the window, and then another. And then I notice that the culprit is Olivia. Her mom is in the front passenger seat and doesn't realize that Olivia has emptied practically an entire box of Kleenex out the rear window. I love it. In this small act of mischief, Olivia has shown both personality and fine motor control that we haven't seen yet from Bryson. If this is Bryson's future, then I'm okay with it. But I'm forced back to reality when I return to the hotel. Laura took the boys down to the pool while I was gone, and Bryson had a massive episode on the pool deck. There was nowhere safe to put him, and for 20 minutes, she struggled to keep Bryson from smashing his head on the concrete deck. I thought, it'll be fine. Connor will be with me. It's a small swimming pool. If I need to take Bry out quickly, it's no problem. And Bryson had an enormous meltdown in the pool. Seizure, I don't know what it was, but... um, Oh gosh, even at that age, you know, the strength, the strength that comes out during those times is really scary. But um, it was one of those moments too, and it happens so much to us, right? Where everything is going fine and you're feeling like, okay, I'm having a moment here. A typical family moment where I'm in a swimming pool with my kids. And then snap, something happens. And Bryson ends up having this, you know, a seizure, an outburst, something happens and everything just crumbles. Like you, it's, it's like being in this like fight or flight mode. All the adrenaline comes because all I have to, all I can focus on is protecting him and keeping him safe and keeping myself safe, keeping other people around me safe. Um, it's really scary. And then And then it's just sadness after that because I think we had a moment and we didn't just lose the moment. It was completely obliterated. (laughs) And then you just pick yourself up and dust yourself off and and you start creating the next moment um, because you never stop trying. Some days it feels too hard, but you can't stop trying to create those moments. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding. With me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts. Available now. After the family meetup, we spend a few more days in Colorado, visiting Colorado Springs and Boulder and the Rocky Mountains. It's beautiful, but I'm still only getting three or four hours of sleep a night. My doctor is phasing me off the prednisone, but it's taking weeks. 
By early 2017, my kidney function has fallen below the 15% threshold. I've crossed from acute kidney disease into kidney failure. My doctor tells me the steps I've taken to cut foods with potassium and phosphorus out of my diet and the pills I'm on to lower my blood pressure should allow me to go a little longer without dialysis or a transplant. But I feel like crap. Since my kidneys are failing to remove most toxins, they're building up in my body and brain. My mind is in a constant state of fog. I can no longer work or exercise. I can't make it up a flight of stairs without taking a break. Even standing still for more than a few minutes is exhausting. The good news is that in Canada, you don't usually die when your kidney fails. If you can't get a transplant, you can go on dialysis and not have to worry about your health care bills. But the more I learn about dialysis, the more I want to avoid it. It basically involves being hooked up to a machine for hours and having all your blood slowly drained from your body, cleaned by a synthetic kidney and pumped back into your veins. And you do this three times a week, every week, for the rest of your life. Dialysis works. It keeps you alive even if you have no kidney function at all. But most people on dialysis still feel sick. And going on it dramatically lowers life expectancy. The much preferred option is to get a kidney transplant. But waiting for a kidney to become available after a donor has died can take years. So I need to find a living donor. The second annual Grin One Meetup takes place near Pittsburgh. This time, we decide to drive. It's about five hours from Toronto. Laura's mom comes with us. Olivia and her parents are back, but there are a bunch of new families too. We meet Owen, a 14-year-old boy from California who also has exactly the same mutation as Bryson and Olivia. Those two aren't twins. They're part of a set of triplets and just like Olivia Owen can walk and has hundreds of words and now there are two kids giving me hope that Bryson will make these same gains but that hope also casts a shadow of doubt because now Bryson is almost 11 and Owen and Olivia were already walking at his age so why isn't Bryson? I'm a bit Embarrassed to admit it, but I start comparing Bryson to other kids with Grin 1. He's not as advanced as this one, but his medical needs aren't as complex as that one. I talk about this rare compare with Dave, whose daughter, Iceland, has some of the most severe symptoms I've seen. I think this is one of the hardest things for me to, to even talk about when I, when I talk about this on the podcast, but... Like, I feel like whenever I meet other kids, like, there's part of me that's always comparing Bryson to, like, how they are. And so, so how does that feel for you? Like, do you ever think about, about that? Um, I think it's a little bit natural. Um, but on the other hand, there's a level of acceptance that comes. You know, and, 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 and it takes a while to get there. I mean, comparing Iceland to other children, I, I'm past that, I think. Um, 
but yeah, I used to compare her frequently to others. Ooh, I wish she could do that, or I'm glad she's not that bad off. You know, and, and I get it. And, and when other families look at Iceland, and if, if they look at her with pity in their eyes, uh, I don't want or need the pity, but I'm not going to blame them either. You know, I'm not going to blame uh, somebody that has a child that's much more mobile or less issues that, you know, to, to thank the good Lord that their kid isn't that severe. I get it, and I, I don't blame them. The meetup format is similar to the year before. Dinner with the families on Friday night, followed by a day of meetings on Saturday. This year, Dr. Stephen Trainellis of Emory University in Atlanta has flown in for the meeting. He's one of the few researchers studying mutations in the GRIN1 gene and possibly knows more about Bryson's condition than anyone else on the planet. He explains that GRIN1 is one of seven genes that contain instructions to build NMDA receptors. There are trillions of these receptors in the brain, and they play a critical role in learning, memory, motor skills, even vision. For the brain to function normally, these receptors need to be able to talk to each other. But what seems to be going on with our kids is that instead of talking, the receptors are either whispering or yelling. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Some of our kids have what Dr. Trainellis calls a loss-of-function mutation, the whispering kind, where the communication is too quiet. Others have a gain-of-function mutation, the yelling kind, where the communication is too loud. Knowing which version Bryson has could help us identify potential treatments. And Dr. Trainellis tells us his lab has funding to do testing that can reveal if our kids have a gain or loss of function. We signed Bryson up right away, but it'll take months to get results. Dr. Trainellis also offers our group some advice. Instead of thinking of GRIN1 as an isolated disease, we should team up with parents of kids with other GRIN mutations. Variants in the GRIN2A and GRIN2B genes seem to be even more common than in GRIN1. Potential treatments and cures could overlap among these different genes, which all code the NMDA receptor. So instead of thinking of Bryson's disease as GRIN1, I begin to understand that it's part of a broader set of GRIN disorders. At the end of the meeting, we talk with other parents about where the next one will take place. Someone suggests Toronto, and we say, sure, we'll host it. Later that year, we get some tragic news. A girl with GRIN1 has died, unexpectedly, in her sleep, a couple of months before her fifth birthday. She'd been fighting a respiratory infection. And it's Mim, whose grandmother rushed to meet us when we arrived at Stumpy's the year before. We never met Mim, but we've seen pictures and heard about her through Judy. It's like we've lost a family member. This terrifies us. We'd been told that Grin isn't degenerative, that this isn't a deadly disease. But Mim's death won't be the last in our tight-knit community. In Quebec, a boy named Maison will die from Grin-related complications before his second birthday. The biggest risk seems to be with kids who have respiratory challenges, where they get 
fluid in their lungs but can't cough it up. But there's also risk of death with the most extreme forms of seizures. And then our community is rocked by a different kind of tragedy. A warning for you now. Some of the video you're about to watch may be disturbing to some of you. It shows a nurse assaulting a disabled child, and it was provided to us by the girl's parents. But Dave and Michelle have set up a nanny cam in their Colorado home, and it captures a nurse violently assaulting Iceland. The parents of Iceland Shelley want people to be aware to help protect those who can't do that themselves. They go public with the video, and the images get broadcast on local Denver news after the caregiver is charged. In one shot, she's yanking Iceland back and forth by her pigtails. In another, she slams her elbow down forcefully on Iceland's chest. Michelle thought that she did her homework when hiring a caretaker for her special needs daughter. To, to find that they were assaulting your child is is sickening and, and it's scary and it causes sleepless nights. What are your biggest fears? <sighs> Boy, that hits close to home. I mean, uh, Iceland had that event in her life uh, where she was abused by a caregiver. Um, I, th I think that fear is always gonna be present for us. Um, uh, Michelle and I see a therapist um, it's good to talk about it, but um, I don't know that I'll ever get Michelle to be able to leave Iceland with another caregiver ever again because of that. And, and, and I can't blame her, you know, um, having a special needs kid and doing something as simple as going out to dinner is already challenging. Um, but having to have somebody with Iceland 24-7 eyes on really kind of divides the family in half. We'll do daddy and daughter days, daddy and Alexis days, or we'll do mommy and Alexis days. And, and Alexis has learned, um, and I'm sure she just bottles it up and doesn't say it sometimes, but, uh, you know, when she was seven or eight, nine years old, sometimes she'd go, why can't we have a family day? You know, and that kind of rips at you because... It's really hard, you know. Well, somebody has to stay home with ice. <laughs> so she doesn't ask anymore, but I'm sure Alexis pines for that at a certain level still. So because so, right now one of, one of you or Michelle is always with Iceland? Yes. Yeah, always now. You know, it used to be that, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday we didn't have caregivers. So, you know, going to the Renaissance Fair or doing something like that, we, it was kind of tough to do as a family because... Iceland can't tolerate the heat, and so somebody had to stay home with her. You know, it wasn't about the caregiver at the time. It was lack of, because we didn't have care on, on weekends. Now that we've, we've experienced the abuse at the hands of a caregiver, you know, that's a never again uh, proposition, you know. When I think of Mim and Maison and Iceland, I'm reminded that finding a cure for Bryson isn't just about helping him to live a typical life. It's also about his safety, his security, and it could literally be a matter of his life and death. But honestly, after years of dreaming about a cure, I'm starting to become skeptical because I can't stop thinking about something Bryson's geneticist, Ronnie Cohn, told us. When is it too late? How much of a disease is reversible? 
By the time researchers have figured out how to safely deliver CRISPR to the brain, will it be too late for Bryson? I'm worried that nobody will come forward to offer me a kidney. But just as we already have a community of love and support around Bryson, there's one that comes together for me as well. I'm amazed at the number of people who volunteer to give up a kidney. For me, friends, cousins, uncles, colleagues, the most shocking was this guy I barely even knew. We had briefly worked together on a project a decade earlier, but he had no hesitancy about making this enormous sacrifice. Laura fills out the paperwork to be a donor, but she never submits it. After a living donation, both the donor and recipient are unable to lift anything heavier than 10 pounds for months. And taking care of Bryson involves a lot of lifting. Despite the help we get from family and Bryson's caregiver, Edna, we can't see any possible way to make it work. Typically, the best matches are siblings. And I'm fortunate that both my sisters, Fiona and Stephanie, go through the testing process to see if they're suitable donors. It turns out my youngest sister, Stephanie, is an ideal match. And she doesn't hesitate, agreeing to give me one of her kidneys. The transplant gets scheduled for April 11, one day before my 45th birthday. They check my blood one last time before surgery. My kidney function has fallen to 7%. Stephanie goes into the operating room first. One of her kidneys is removed and she's sewn back up. They wheel her out, then wheel me into the same operating room. Four hours later, Stephanie's left kidney has been inserted into my lower right abdomen. And before I even wake up, the new kidney is working overtime to remove all the toxins that have built up in my blood. Oh yeah, I remember that. In fact, I remember when we were waiting in this surgical waiting room for your surgeon to come out, and he came out to talk to us, and he said, we can already tell, we, could, we were already able to run tests that the kidney is functioning properly. And we all just nearly fell off our chairs. We were so excited and shocked, right? That it could work right away, so quickly. Yeah, it felt like a miracle. I just can't believe they can do that. And how did that make you feel in terms of our need for another miracle for Bryson? Well... To me, they're very separate. He deserves his miracle. You got your miracle. The next few months are rough for Laura. She needs to do all the lifting with Bryson. But before long, my sister and I are both back to full health. I feel like I've been given a second chance at life, and I want to live it to the fullest. I start meditating and journaling about gratitude. And I launch my instruction manual, a self-help podcast and book series. I get so busy with this new project that it's hard to find time to plan the Toronto Grin One conference. I do a Google search for people in Toronto researching Grin genes and NMDA receptors, and I'm shocked to find out that there are a bunch of experts here in my hometown. 
Mike Salter from the Hospital for Sick Children, Amy Ramsey and Graham Collingridge from University of Toronto. I'm even more surprised at how quick they are to accept my invitation to come speak to the Grin families. Amy will be out of the country, but she sends her doctoral student instead. Six American families make the trip to the first meetup in Canada. Scott and Teresa are back with Olivia. Our friends Joe and Kelly arrive with their daughter Layla. Dave and Alexis are here, though Michelle stayed back at home with Iceland. There's a couple from New York whose Grin One granddaughter lives in California, and a new couple from Louisiana whose two-year-old son Carter is at home with his grandparents. And 17-year-old Tori is here with her mom and aunt and cousin. We go to dinner and see a Blue Jays game and visit Niagara Falls together. And we spend a long day in a conference room meeting with researchers. The science is dense, and so much of it goes over my head. But the amazing thing we hear from researcher after researcher is that a cure is possible. And not just far into the future through CRISPR, but potentially sooner if we can identify the right drugs. They tell us the NMDA receptor responds well to pharmaceuticals, and that pharma companies are actively looking for drugs that can target it. Not just for our kids, but because these receptors are also known to be involved in all kinds of conditions, from schizophrenia and Alzheimer's to depression and pain management. But the highlight is a presentation from Amy's doctoral student, Catherine Melnick. She tells us about an experiment she and Amy did at the University of Toronto, where they inserted a GRIN1 mutation into mice and attached a sort of on-off switch. They wanted to find out what would happen if they took a mouse born with a debilitating GRIN1 mutation and then turned off the mutation when the mouse was an adult. One possibility, maybe the likely one, was that it would be too late. That the NMDA receptor is so important for normal brain development that if you don't fix it at birth or very early in life, there's no point in even trying. But that's not what they found. Instead, when they removed the GRIN1 mutation, these impaired mice started acting a lot more like typical mice. They gained strength and became more social and got better at solving mazes. Now, there's a huge difference between mouse brains and people brains. But the GRIN1 gene, it's actually pretty similar. So there's a good chance that if we could find a cure for Bryson, even when he's a teenager, even when he's an adult, it might not be too late. Laura and I meet with Amy about the research when she gets back to Canada. Well, I guess just in terms of, for parents like us, what do you think that latest study about the rescue mice says? I think it says that the, the brain plasticity exists, that you don't need to be anxious about missing those windows of therapy, that the windows are probably quite broad and that it would still be worth looking for treatments even for your adult child.
I never thought that there could actually be a cure for Bryson. I think I was really focused on could there be maybe a treatment for the seizures that he has or something that could help us communicate with him in a new way through, you know, technology, scanning the brain and somehow, like I figured that those technologies might get us closer to him and closer to helping him live as full a life as possible. I never ever thought that any kind of significant opportunity might exist out there. Despite having started to learn about gene editing and CRISPR, just on the fringes of that. But hearing Amy's research at the Toronto conference, oh my goodness, it completely changed our world and gave us, I think it gave us that hope, but also a bit of that kick in the ass to say, oh my gosh, okay, we have to do something here because maybe science is ready for this. As we're saying goodbye to researchers Mike Salter and Graham Collingridge at the Toronto conference, we ask them what we should do next in our quest to find a cure for Bryson. They suggest we try to get a mouse made using CRISPR-Cas9 that would have Bryson's exact GRIN1 mutation. This could allow us to understand exactly what's going on in Bryson's brain and identify drugs that might help restore normal function And then, they offer to help us get this Bryson mouse made. Next time on Unlocking Bryson's Brain. It's like moving at light speed. So the 620 Grin Mouse will be over there? Yes. Hi, little Grin One Mouse. Could I hold one? Unlocking Bryson's Brain is hosted and written by me, Keith MacArthur. Our associate producer is Graham McDonald, who also does our mixing and sound design. Our digital producer is Emily Cannell. Chris Oak is our story editor. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Original music in this episode by Graham McDonald. Additional audio clips from KUSA. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer, and our executive producer is Arif Nurani. We're sharing bonus content on Instagram and Facebook, including a picture of my sister Stephanie and me in the hospital right after the transplant. Just search for CBC Podcasts on those platforms. To learn more about grin disorders, visit curegrin.org. Do you have tips to help us unlock Bryson's brain or your own story about navigating the medical world with a rare or undiagnosed condition? We'd love to hear from you. Reach us at unlocking at cbc.ca. Finally, let me leave you with a brief excerpt from my other podcast, My Instruction Manual, where I talked to my sister after she donated a kidney to me. So. Stephanie, I want to start by going back in time to ask you Mm -hmm. if you remember when you first learned about my kidney disease or when you first thought, oh no, I might have to give up an organ to save this guy. Yeah, it's funny. I I actually don't remember um, when it first was because I feel like somewhere in kind of the back of things we've known for 
years that at some point you might need a transplant. So I don't, I don't even really remember when it was I first heard that it might be something that you would need. But I do remember always just thinking, of course. I mean, of course, if that's a thing that I can do, then that's a thing that I will do. You said that you always kind of thought that in the back of your head, if you ever had to, you would, you would do it. But mm-hmm. like, what were the, the pros and cons for you when you were thinking it through? I think partly because, um, you know, in 2014, we lost our dad. And, um, you know, we had both seen him get sick and not really been able to do anything for him and to help him. And knowing that you were getting sicker and there was a thing I could do, a concrete thing that wasn't just, you know, put the kettle on or uh, go visit at the hospital. That was, I mean, that's something really amazing and empowering. And um, I think anyone who's ever watched someone they love be sick would do almost anything to make them better. And so actually having that opportunity and having that chance, I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't really a thought process. It was, it was, it just, it, it was a thing they were going to let me do. If I was going to pass the testing, it was a thing I was going to do. So for me, I mean, I talk about this a lot on the podcast and elsewhere, but I feel like your decision, your generosity, it changed my life a lot, not just in terms of how I physically feel, but it really kind of changed my whole perspective on life and made me more grateful for what I have and just made me want to live life to the fullest. Did you find that going through the experience, did it have any kind of change on you? It's weird because I didn't, like, truthfully, I didn't really do anything. The surgeon and the other, you know, surgical team and the nurses and everyone else, they they all did it. Um, but it, there's this kind of sense of accomplishment, you know, of, um, of having done something really amazing and really helpful and valuable and useful. And, you know, it's this, this same feeling that I kind of, I get when I give blood or when I've donated my hair in the past, it's that exact same feeling, but amplified by, you know, a thousand. <laughs> right. And that's a nice feeling because we don't always have things that make us feel that way. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for what you did for me and for my family, for my boys. And thank you for sharing your experience here. You're welcome. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.